Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm very well, podcast husband. How are you? <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day, Happy apparently. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> um, but yes, so we are doing what we normally do th- this time of year, which is we're going to talk about a movie that is is romantic, um, that is kind of like has a nice sensibility to it. Uh, is one of the rare kind of movies on the list that is a romantic comedy, perhaps You're the defining. You're doing your irony voice. What? That, what? <laughs> I have an irony voice. <laughs> It's like when you do bottom 100, it's like, yeah, we're doing an excellent movie this week. <laughs> um, um, I'm sorry. But yes, we are talking about It Happened One Night, Frank Capra's 1934 um, classic, arguably the first screwball comedy, arguably the first romantic comedy, the first movie to sweep the big five categories at the Oscar, best picture, best director, best actor, best actress, best screenplay, um, and a movie that not only established its stars as Hollywood royalty, but also established its studio as Hollywood royalty. This is a big one, and the reason that we're talking about it is because Friend of the podcast, past and future guest Luke Dunn, uh, introduced me to Kira Maloney from the Sunday. So how are you, Kira? Uh, yeah, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, so, an absolute pleasure. <laughs> great to have you. No, we should no. say up front. Normally listeners don't get to hear this, but always interrupt us. <laughs> yeah, people yeah. want to hear, hear you speak. Yeah. Like, like um, we, 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 I can interrupt Darren. Darren can interrupt me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can yeah, interrupt yeah. both of us. We can't interrupt you. <laughs> and That's if we the do, Trump rule. Uh, is, is it... tell us to shut up. You have the mic option. We'll Our ratings go up when people tell us to shut up. <laughs> um, it adds conflict and drama. Um, but yes, just to give a bit of back context here. So I got in touch with Kira and I basically sent through a list of all of the movies that we have not yet covered on the top 250 and the bottom 100. And Kira got back with a couple of suggestions, and one of which we're hopefully going to discuss later in the year. But the one that kind of jumped out at me because it would fit in this kind of slot just before Valentine's Day was It Happened One Night. So, Kira, what was it about It Happened One Night that was like, yeah, that's that's the one that I want to talk about? Um, well, to me, it was like, oh, of course, It Happened One Night. Like, it's it's such an obvious classic of American cinema I was immediately confused why you hadn't done an episode on it already and then when I saw how low it was on the list I was very confused about that um like if you put it happen one night like fifth on the best movies of all time I I wouldn't blink I might complain about it being too low um so uh yeah I don't know it just seemed like of course you know it's it's it's, it's you know it's, of course it's a very um, and- perplexing list and podcast. <laughs> 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 That'll <laughs> explain some. It'll, it'll, you'll, you'll find the answers to some of your questions. <laughs> like, and they won't always be happy answers, to yeah. be fair. Um, but yeah, it, it Happened One Night is a movie that has been on the list since its inception. It is one of the rare 100 percenters. As Kira oh, wow. noted, it is a movie that is gradually dropping down the list. It is currently, I think, uh, in the 230s, if not the 240s. It is unfortunately yeah. trending outwards. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, it's, see what we said when we said you learn uncomfortable truths <laughs> about this list. So this is this is like a public service announcement. Yes, we are. Like, Everyone save, go on IMDb. Savior. And, and Hashtag save it happen one night. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so that's it. This is an advocacy podcast. <laughs> we are now making an argument for keeping it on the list. Um, but Kira, do you remember the first time that you saw It Happened One Night? Uh, I, I Maybe. Um, I think I was in like my late teens. It was, it was definitely on Netflix, I remember, because, you know, sometimes I just reminisce about films I once watched on Netflix and I'm bowled over by how they used to have, you know, like films made before 1970 on there or films at all really um, and uh yeah and I mean I've always loved rom-coms I mean I probably watched You've Got Mail 500 times growing up and and I love classic Hollywood so it seemed like oh this 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 would be good and then I threw it on and I was just like buzzing with joy the whole time <laughs> how many times have you seen Sleepless in Seattle um, um, not as many as you've got mail, but a lot. I love, I lo- what I love about Sleepers in Seattle is that it's got like the same structure as Heat, <laughs> where they, <laughs> they, they like kind of intersect in the middle and then, and then finally meet properly at the end. It's great. <laughs> and minor spoiler for Sleepers in Seattle, but only one of them makes it out alive. Um, <laughs> but, um... <laughs> That was not a spoiler for Sleepless in Seattle. That might have been a spoiler for something else. Um, but okay, so to, to to bring it back to it's going to be happen. What number one, <laughs> listeners? Yeah. Oh. What will the second reference to Heat be? Does Andrew have one already? Andrew has one. Oh, fantastic! Um, all right, that what a coincidence because I also have a reference to Heat that we'll be making later on. We are bringing but the Heat. We are indeed bringing. Are you excited the heat. about yes, Heat Two, the novel? <laughs> It's both a prequel oh, and a sequel. It's the it? Godfather 2 of Heat. The fact that it's called Heat 2 is just amazing to me. <laughs> There's no book called Heat. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do love that, like, Michael Mann, who is, like, one of the most serious, like, hard-boiled directors, like, writers out there today, is just like, what do I call it? Heat, heat 2. two. <laughs> the heatening. Like, he's definitely not, like, some kind of highbrow who's above kind of you know like like he's like miami vice and kind of you know he he knows what people want they want he too exactly with a colon and a subtitle Um, it doesn't have a subtitle it's just he too it's not electric boogaloo (laughs) all right i take back what i said But yes, um, yes, he too is is a thing that is actually happening. I feel like we have to confirm this isn't a bit. Um, but just a little bit of background uh, in and terms company. of <laughs> is that what the Forrest Gump was? Um, Gump Gump and Company, yeah. Uh, so this is the yeah, this is this is <laughs> the Heat Saga Part Two, except um, it's a but, prequel. And a sequel. It's also it's a it's a prequel and a sequel simultaneously. It's The Godfather Two. Oh. Um, <laughs> Yeah. All right. So this is a podcast about It Happened One Night, it, um, which is the 1934 movie released by um, Columbia Pictures, uh, directed by Frank Capra, written by Rob Riskin, uh, obviously um, st- starring Claudette Colbert um, and ah, damn, Clark, Gable. Clark, Gable. Mark, Clark Gable, of course. How you got, could the, I you got the difficult one. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, but yeah, so basically- just for everyone at home, like her name is obviously Colbert but she pronounced it Colbert to, like, sound fancy or whatever. Like like Stephen. Yeah, Colbert. but he did it as a bit, and now he's, like, stuck with it. <laughs> Who did it better? Did it, did Stephen take the idea of 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 making his name sound a little French 
uh, from Claudette, I wonder. I, I imagine so. Yeah. I don't know. I do like that kind of connection that exists. It's like Michael Keaton um, calling himself Michael Keaton because he saw an article about Diane Keaton. Um, in reality, Michael Keaton's real name is Michael Douglas. Um, and really? Diane. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he went to Hollywood and he discovered that unfortunately somebody already had that Screen Actors Guild card. Di- don't know how, don't know why, never heard of this guy. Diane so he's like, Keaton what do I call had the same issue when she signed up to be an yes. actress. Her name was Diane Lane. But she saw like a, a Buster Holt, Keaton wasn't movie. it? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Andrew is Andrew is doing a bit. Okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what, did she actually have have a a, a, a another yeah. name? Okay. Yeah, and it was it was we, we discussed this on the Annie Hall episode. It was Diane Hall making her. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I know the, the Annie Hall episode has gone down the memory hole for reasons that we won't go into on this. You can tell I love our episodes. <laughs> yeah. Just listen back to them all the time. I just um, listen back but, to my epi- uh, old episodes and I'm like, oh, I'm good. <laughs> um, why haven't I jettisoned the other guy is what Andrew asks himself at this stage. Why am I stuck with this baggage? Oh, it's the good right. bit is coming up is when I talk. Um. <laughs> All right. So so just a little bit of a, an introduction to what happened one night. Obviously, it is based on the short story Night Bus written by Samuel Hopkins Adams. Um, Frank Capron came up with the idea of adapting it um, into a movie along with Robert Riskin, who is one of his long-term collaborators. Uh, basically, it was adapted by Columbia Pictures, who at that time were a Poverty Row studio. They were generally seen as being a cheap and cheerful outfit. Um, they spent very little money on their movies. They largely produced kind of serials. They were seen as being like a forgettable and disposable um, studio. This is Columbia Pictures, which would obviously become, you know, TriStar and then be bought out by Sony in 1989. Famously run by Harry Cohn. And when they came to him with the idea of adapting Nightbus, he was like, ah, that's a great idea. Because we're in the middle of a depression. Millions of people are traveling on the road working, looking for work. And apparently buses are much cheaper than trains. So surely the public will find some sort of like resonance in this story about two people who meet and fall in love on a bus journey together. Um, and he was like, yep, that's exactly what this studio wants right now. And in fact, and I think Andrew might appreciate this, it was apparently rushed into production in order to compete with other studios' rival bus movies, <laughs> including 1934's Fugitive Lovers from MGM and Universal's 1934 Cross Country Cruise as well, with said cruise taking place on a bus. I do like that this was kind of the deep... Imp- but snakes on a bus. Yeah. Um, this was the deep impact Armageddon of 1934. This was the, uh, you know, illusionist and the prestige. Ants and Bugs Life. Ants and a Bugs Life, We're yes. We're already so the- talking about Woody Allen. <laughs> it's like the strange gravity, that, uh, the strange and unfortunate gravity that he exerts on this podcast. But yeah, basically, so, you know, Capra came up with the idea of, yes, we're going... But not on the list. And not doesn't exist anymore, which is probably for the best. Um, but yeah, okay, so... I'm sorry. It happened John. one night of... <laughs> a very troubled, very uh, very problematic production. Huge trouble finding its two leading actors. Um, very, very, like, very, Capra had trouble finding the cast that he wanted. In fact, actually, Capra would write an editorial for the New York Times upon the movie's release, basically saying, you know what, I don't even like using actors. I don't even like having stars in the role. <laughs> if I had my option, I'd just hire unknown players. But the problem is that I have to hire famous people because the public has come to look for names and must have them. And here's an actual quote, by the way. So take this, leading actors. 
It isn't because I can't find a better actor or an actor more suited to the role that I hire big name stars. It's because the public looks for their names on the fronts of theatres. If the people who buy the tickets can be given enough confidence in the director and his selection to play his long shots instead of their favourites, the results will be more completely rounded productions. In minor roles, I can have more leeway. Not hampered by the thought of names, I can pick the actors best suited for the roles, right from the extras on up. Sometimes I pick them out in the casting line, sometimes I grab them off the street. I can get any actors, any place, as long as I have the story. So, uh, yeah, well, take that. Is it, isn't that the kind of, like, like, I might be wrong, but isn't that the kind of Orson Welles thing? That, that, that you know, people wanted to see an Orson Welles movie. Yeah. And he was the star. And um, the actors were kind of mostly, like in Citizen Kane, were mostly um, theatre actors. So They're part of the troupe, yeah. And uh, maybe, maybe Capra is just kind of sour grapes. <laughs> is like is Capra not a big enough name for you? Um, well, I mean, I, well, I mean, there is the kind of argument that Capra was one of the first American auteurs, obviously before the term auteur exists. And this is probably a good question then to throw to Kira. Like, what's your opinion of Capra as a director? Like, you talked about loving these classic movies, loving loving these kind of retro, kind of like classic vintage Hollywood. Where does Capra fall for you in terms of like great directors, great American directors, great classic Hollywood directors? Um, I love Capra. I, I find it fascinating that even though he was, like, quite right-wing in real life, he made these, like, very left-wing films. Just because, which, you know, makes sense because they would make the most money at the time. So it's easy to a logic <laughs> to it. capitalism action. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I a lot of people, like, people who don't like Capra complain about him being corny. And I'm not sure I really believe in corniness as, like, a concept, but if I did, I wouldn't complain about Capra being corny because, like, a lot of his films have, like, like say, It's a Wonderful Life. Like, yes, it has that big, happy ending, but it's also extremely dark through a lot of it. And there's this kind of balance of, like, I don't know, I, I love stuff that people think is like lame and corny or whatever i love spielberg i love capra i love the big kind of yeah but yeah capra capra is very american um and yeah i don't know what am i saying sorry <laughs> uh, can i ask how, how how do you feel about um his name is escaping me that rapper from toronto he had a beef with Kid Cudi. I feel like we've spoken about him on the... Drake? Um, Drake. How do you feel about Drake? Like... Fantastic, Andrew. I do appreciate <laughs> you. Because he he yeah. he's kind of... I, I've heard him described as like the apotheosis of like corniness. But that people like him, if not in spite of his corniness. And Darren, this is kind of like, where is this going? <laughs> Um, and that there's a gen- I'll allow it. that there's a generation. I've heard that there's a, like a generational like Darren and I are very old. Um, <laughs> and, and based on your Netflix story earlier, um, I'm guessing you're not. So I, I'm wondering, kind of like there's this claim out there that like um, people of a certain age like Drake and people of a certain age don't. I don't know if that's true. I don't think it really is. But the 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 the, the argument is that there there's something kind of like too corny about him that just kind of disqualifies him from 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 people of a certain age but that maybe corniness is something that is 
you know doesn't discount like the value of things for for younger people is this is this too hot a take there <laughs> no 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 my, my concern is more that drake probably has other baggage that that is not that um that would be my concern hot sauce prophylactics <laughs> you've been reading the news um uh sorry um kira yeah uh, no i i i get what you're saying i i feel like the generational divide on drake isn't really about corniness i think it's like that he's i i, I don't know he's kind of dull <laughs> it's probably the most of it and and the kids don't like to be overstimulated <laughs> um but maybe that's it sorry i mean obviously there's the whole generation x like like irony thing that i guess would make you not like stuff that's corny but like i'm saying i don't believe in corniness really like it's it's just a word for this 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 is too sincere this is too like I, i'm i'm going to, to back away from it um well, that's very generation x yeah yeah the protective level of irony and self-awareness and the nothing really matters because we don't really care <laughs> about anything kind of attitude yeah yeah. Um, I mean, it, it is worth, again, noting that like how this movie came together incredibly rushed, as we were saying, no talent attached up until the last possible minute. So, you know, actors like, say, Myrna Loy, Margaret Sullivan, Miriam Hopkins, Constance uh, Bennett had all passed on playing the role because they felt like it would demean them to be seen traveling on a bus. Hopkins, <laughs> Hopkins, re- Hopkins, Miriam Hopkins reportedly sniffed. Not if I never play another part, which seems like a double negative, but I'm sure was was very passive aggressive. And the, how... uh, buses smell like piss. You know why? <laughs> um, sorry. Uh, what, okay. what is that? That's a Tom Cruise reference to um, ba, 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 ba. Uh, Dustin Hoffman. Uh, oh, Rain, Rain Man. Rain Man. Rain yes. Man. Yes. Buses smell go. like piss. You know why? Because people piss on them. Um, okay true (laughs) (laughs) thank you andrew but yes so apparently it came to it came down to um harry Cohn, who was the head of columbia pictures who was like look what about uh claudette colbert um and colbert had apparently worked with um capra on 1924 back when he was kind of still starting out had not enjoyed the experience she was under contract to paramount as well capra himself was not particularly keen on the idea she was not keen either but then cohen comes back with the wonderful hollywood executive line uh, which i feel like i almost have to read uh in some sort of old 30s accent yeah 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 she's taking a four-week vacation and i heard the french broad likes money uh is apparently (laughs) what he said so, uh, they pretending to be French was going over then. Apparently, she was born in Paris, mm. uh, even though she immigrated to the U.S. as a child. Um, oh wow! That's a fake news. Fake news. This isn't like Alec Baldwin's wife. <laughs> is it Hilaria? Um, oh, who is uh, who is Spanish? It's obviously Hillary. She's yeah. Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Listeners can't see air quotes. I am making air quotes around the word Spanish. Um, but yes, apparently. So they said, OK, let, let's get Colbert to do it. And they went to her house and she had two conditions, which I kind of like admire the gumption of. 
The first of which was she wanted double her usual pay. So instead of getting 25 grand, she wanted 50 grand. And they said yes. And the second and most important condition she had when they showed up at her house in November 1933, November 21st, 1933, was that she had a really important Christmas party that she had to attend on December 23rd in Sun Valley, California. And she absolutely positively had to be done on the movie by then. So they said, yes, okay, we will film this entire movie in four weeks so you can go attend that Christmas party with your mates, uh, which I kind of love as well. Uh, Apparently, the production was a great deal of fun. Similarly, the story uh, of how Gable came along to be in the movie is, is kind of along those lines. Gable was at the time under contract to MGM. Uh, and Louis B. Mayer apparently leased him out. Now, there are the classic Hollywood story is that Gable had been misbehaving and been giving lip and been giving a bad attitude. And so Mayer was punishing him by sending him to a low rent studio, Columbia Pictures. Apparently, that is partially true. Uh, but what a current, what a former Sony executive has suggested, uh, Michael Schlesinger, has said that apparently the reason that Gable was sent there was because actors were paid per week, no matter whether they worked or not. There was a gap in the schedule and Mayer didn't want to be paying Gable for work he wasn't doing. So he struck up a deal with Columbia where Columbia would pay him two and a half grand every week for Gable's work on the movie. And in return, you know, Gable would get the two grand that MGM owed him and Mayer would pocket a nice $500 kind of off the top there as well, (laughs) which is interesting. I'd say like it's possible both are true, right? Oh yeah, like, yeah. No, you, you pay MGM for punishing Gable. <laughs> <laughs> it it does seem very much like how Hollywood works there. I feel like everybody won, really, in that situation. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, according to Gable, uh, sorry, according to Capra, nobody learned any lessons. <laughs> no, they, everybody ended up coming out of it happier than they'd gone into this situation, despite passively aggressively torturing one another. Um, but according to like Capra's, just like this podcast, <laughs> we still haven't learned our lessons. Um, but according to like Capra's 1971 autobiography, which is the name above the title, Gable would show up drunk while filming this. Uh, and slurringly share his theory that Columbia Pictures was like being banished to Siberia. Uh, (laughs) When he saw the workers assembling the set, he yelled out loud, why ain't you wearing parkas? Um, Which is just a wonderful story. But apparently over the course of the movie, Capra and Gable kind of connected with one another. They forged a friendship that would last beyond the movie itself. And apparently according to Capra, Gable's performance in It Happened One Night is as close as he ever saw to Gable's personality actually being captured on screen. He felt like this character in this movie was the closest to capturing who Clark Gable was. MGM probably had a point then. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If it's that close to, like, his real character, then I can imagine why they would kind of say, hey, why don't you... (laughs) (laughs) Go over to Columbia and just... Make yourself useless over there, baby. Um, all right. So before we jump in, before we ask the three questions, Kira, is there anything else you want to say just in terms of like an introduction to it happened one night? Just your kind of initial thoughts on it before we get into the spoilers. Just like if you were making a pitch, this is like hashtag save it happened one night. <laughs> like what is your big argument for this movie? Well, it happened one night is just so incredibly fun and funny and romantic and sexy and it's just a delight. It's it's you know it's 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 the bubbles and champagne. It's one of the purest examples of how a film can elicit joy. And 
it's obviously so like watching it this time I was just like this is the most influential film that has ever been made <laughs> so much of like like I mean it invented the screwball comedy but it, it that's almost a disservice to its influence because it it effectively invented the romantic comedy as we know it um and the you know it so it should, it should be it should it, hashtag hashtag it you know like like the Snyder Cut thing you, you they got the job done <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I I really don't want to come onto Twitter and find the hardcore. It happened one night. The Capra heads um, have begun to organize. Um, yes, you do, Darren. You live for that. <laughs> I, like, I, oh, I live for drama. Please don't make me go to Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, oh, if you and, insist. And... <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that in mind, then we're going to segue into the three questions then before we jump to the four. So, so Kira... Do you think It Happened One Night belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? So, look, obviously any list of the greatest movies is going to be inherently subjective and pretty arbitrary. Like, there are too many films in the world for any person to have seen all of them. So how can you say definitively which are the best ones? But that doesn't stop me constantly thinking about lists and rankings and the IMDb list is so interesting because if, I mean, if you have a degree of familiarity with IMDb, you sort of know the biases that tend to be at play. Like, there's a bias in favor of more recent films, always. Uh, there's a bias against horror um, a lot of the time. Like, I think The Exorcist isn't in it, which is crazy. Um, but part of what I like about the IMDb 250 is that it's constantly changing. So it has this kind of fluidity baked in, I guess. Like... These are the best movies of all time. As of right now, we're probably forgetting some and probably overrating something that just came out, which is... You mean Spider-Man Far From Home isn't the 16th best <laughs> film of all time? Oh, or No Way Home. <laughs> but that's what all lists of greatest movies are, but it's like implicitly acknowledged by the way the IMDb list works. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah. That's going to... like. <laughs> If you made a list of the greatest movies, you're going to just miss stuff and you're going to put something that you saw recently because you remember it. Um, but in terms of should it happen when night be on it? Uh, yes, of course, obviously, uh, it's perfect. And it's crazy that it's so far down. And I mean, the idea, uh, like, I, I can't know whether there are 250 films better than it happened one night, but it seems... You know, I mean, what are the chances? It's, it seems pretty unlikely. Um, we, we should note, by the way, that I think Kira just made a good argument for the defense for this podcast running as long yeah. as it has. <laughs> good job. Yeah. It, it's, it's like the things do um, kind of jump in and out. Like, what? how long was Moonlight on the top 250? We we did cover Three hours. Three hours. Moonlight was in for three so, hours on the list. <laughs> Insane. Until people realized it was on, and then they were like, "No, yeah." And like for Get Out had a similar sort of thing. Get Out, I think, was in for two days. I think Knives Out lasted a day. And neither of us can understand why. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will put my. I will put my hand up for that. Also, it's fine. Knives Out is fine. Get over it. 
Knives Out is probably a stranger one, is it? Well, actually, is it that people are angry at Rian Johnson? Or... I think I think it's just that people were angry oh, at okay. Rian Johnson. Like, so as soon as it popped up, it was like a whack-a-mole situation. Internet people are cool. <laughs> <laughs> Internet people are calm and cool and even-handed. But no, yeah. I, I, I do think there is something there that you're making about the idea of like constantly remembering and, and kind of regurgitating. Because it is worth noting that like our new entries of the past two years have included things like Ingmar Bergman's Autumn Sonata from like 1976 or um, oh, yeah. Durzu Uzala oh, by Akira Kurosawa from 1975, where there's that, that real vibe, I think, of, from years ago, yeah. From like 1973. Like this idea of like, as Kira mentioned this, Oh, shoot, I forgot this movie, um, which is kind of an appealing thing. So I think, th- first of all, thank you very much for that. Um, and then, Andrew, do you think that It Happened One Night belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Absolutely. 100%. Um, this movie is hilarious, and there are not enough funny movies on the list at all. I, I, like Kira quite rightly pointed out, to, uh, there are um the lack of of horror movies each year we're like struggling <laughs> for for a horror movie we're really struggling now this year is going to be a tough tough halloween or <laughs> two um, um and and similarly with valentine's day <laughs> yeah we have to kind of struggle to to think of like is there a, a romantic is there another romantic movie on 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 the list, or could we argue that this is actually a romantic movie? And yeah. comedies, I think, are very underserved. Like there, you know, there there's there's great television programs and movies that aren't comedies but that are hilarious. Um, but um, this is this 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 very much is a, a screwball romantic comedy, and deserves to be on the list. And there deserve to be more movies like this. I think when 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 we sit people down and we say, like, if it were up to you, what would you have on the list? Um, all kind of romantic comedies tend to 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 um be one of kind of people's favorite um types of movies. It's 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 a strange kind of a thing where IMDb sometimes feels like it's a certain kind of there's snobbery. I think for a certain like, genre. yeah, people kind of drama is always more kind of respected than comedy right kind of comedy and horror similar in that respect in that people kind of think of it as sort of easy or like kind of like appealing to like a base emotion like it's not like deep and meaningful um which isn't true but also who cares like if a comedy is really funny then it's a great film Uh, it doesn't matter if it's about stuff but also lots of comedies are about stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's I think it's kind of I think it's gendered as well a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, um like there's a a big like kind of dismissal of romantic comedies as like chick flicks even though like like say I would say if you picked anyone of any gender they would be equally as likely to like it happened one night or like when Harry met Sally or something. But there's uh, sort of an expectation that those are films for women. Right. Um, kind of the way Westerns is seen as being like for men. And it's like, it's really dumb. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. It's the kind of thing where like culturally we're meant to like certain things and dislike other things. 
It's it's like the amount of people who don't like football <laughs> who, will, who will be forced to watch football and pretend that they're enjoying it. I actually do like football, but I have to pretend not to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, actually, that, that that is a very valid point in terms of like the idea of snobbery there on the list. I mean, there's a solid argument to be made that this was one of only two pure comedies to have ever won the Best Picture Oscar. And I mean, I think you can make the argument that, you know, things like, say, The Artist or things like Parasite are partially comedies or partially, you know, Parasite in particular is partially a dark comedy. The Apartment. But like dominant. The Apartment. Yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, The Apartment Annie Hall are the two other big ones there. And I think The Apartment kind of gets an exception because that's a dark and serious movie in many respects because it, it literally has a suicide attempt in there. Um, whereas this is more kind of screwball, pure. It's pretty funny. Like, uh, there's a really funny suicide joke in the apartment. Spoils for the apartment yeah. for no reason. But at the end, <laughs> she's running up to his up up to the titular apartment, and you hear what sounds like a gunshot, but it's actually him opening a bottle of champagne, and it's just <laughs> perfect. Um, but yeah, but I mean, even even so, with that, then so we have maybe three best picture winners that we would classify as comedies over Shakespeare in Love. Yes, and re- and remember the chaos that that caused when that won. Um, just to illustrate the point or to underscore the point, but yeah, the, generally speaking, the idea that comedies have been relatively underserved um, in terms of like awards recognition, in terms of lists like this as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and for myself, uh, definitely, I think it's I think it's pretty inarguable. Um, as much as yes, these lists are subjective, and as much as taste is different, and as much as you can make an argument for absolutely anything, I think that this is a movie where virtually any argument you make for it is a good one. So you can argue it is important in terms of Hollywood history, in terms of, you know, obviously establishing Columbia Pictures as one of the major studios, one of the five or six major studios in Hollywood. You can argue that it is important historically because it establishes either the screwball or the romantic comedy. And arguably, as Kira pointed out, its influence outlasts the screwball comedy. And it becomes a template for absolutely every romantic comedy that follows. Uh, Beyond that, you even just have the fact that it's simply very, very, very good, um, which is (laughs) arguably an an argument on its own merits as well. And I think we talked on this before, where like, generally speaking, when I see a movie from the 30s, 40s or 50s, like you have to make a strong argument for me that it deserves to be removed because there are so few of them, relatively speaking, because, as Kira pointed out, of the recency bias. So, yeah, I, I think that, you know, you would, rather than having to make an argument for this movie to be on the list, you would have to make a very convincing argument that it shouldn't be on the list uh, for me to, to even kind of consider that. And I say that as the person on the podcast who's generally like, eh, maybe, I don't know. Sorry, Andrew. <laughs> no, and, and it's a kind of a time capsule as well. Like, kind of, for, 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 for if you want to kind of represent the era and what the era was about, like it, it's, it's, it's very kind of it's timely the word. Um, yeah. yeah. Of its time. Of its time. Yeah. I beg your pardon. Yeah. And also no, timeless I, as well. That one yes, balance of being yeah. both. Yeah. I just want Sorry. to say that, that Darren may have accidentally launched like a hashtag remove. It happened one night movement to come at me bro the... with your arguments <laughs> <laughs> yeah he, he, he is he is the new sister mary do you remember when we went to school you had a principal who who would decide that there was far too much of certain things and launch campaigns against them <laughs> and it would always have the opposite effect so whatever the campaign was like people would take the opposite message so our our, our campaign to keep it on the list 
would be the thing that... Um... <laughs> and that, that eventually pushes it over the edge. Like our recording of an episode on Jaws, which corresponded with Jaws leaving the 250. Jaws isn't um, in the 250? I know, it's <laughs> no. not. That's outrageous. Not anymore. It's not. Robocop isn't on the 250 Oh my god. Either. This gratuitous Robocop reference. But I, I do love every time we have a guest on and we mention that Jaws isn't on the 250, we get the exact same reaction. I kind of love that about Jaws. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, obviously you could argue then as well, like its position as this weird um, pre, but not quite pre-code kind of comedy existing in that kind of liminal space where the Hayes office had been established in 1930. Every studio in Hollywood knew that there were going to be rules coming in in July 1934. And this manages to skirt in just under the radar, but is clearly written with an understanding that like how Hollywood is dealing with these things changes. Um, And arguably even its use of dialogue as well, seven years after the jazz singer, like discovering that things like comedy can use dialogue in the way that they do and the basis of the screwball comedy. So yeah, I, I would argue on inarguably yes. Um, all right then. And then second question, Kira, would this be on your own personal 250, your own 250 favorite movies that you've ever oh, seen? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, as somebody who makes a list, do you have a ranking of it? I don't have like a ranking, but I mean, I definitely, if I was making a list, I would definitely get to it happen one night in like, maybe the low double digits um so yeah that's what of course of course it's one of my favorite movies i don't i don't even know how it couldn't be right and andrew what about yourself i i I think it would i mean i i'm like a broken record with my kind of like it made me laugh it made me cry it was about (laughs) something i don't know if it had (laughs) enough pathos on this viewing for me to actually cry, but I laughed my ass off. It's so funny. It's and so it, funny. Exactly. And and it definitely was about things as well. Um, and it's, so, yeah, yeah, I, I I think I would. I mean, of 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 um, of all the movies we've covered, like kind of the, this, this certainly belongs in, in, in the upper echelons, I think. Nice. Um, and for myself, I feel like I'm going to be the Grinch who ruined Christmas. I'm not you hate fond Capra. of this. I I do. I do. I'm sorry. I'm. I guess I am one of those people. It's not that. I, okay, this is probably something we should save for the actual spoiler zone. But my 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 issue with Capra isn't that I find Capricorny because I I uh, Capricorn Capricorn. Hey. Anyway, it, it took a lot of work, but we got there in the end. I find myself kind of skeptical of Capra. Th- thank you. Um, just gonna capper it all off there. Remember um, when I... Westlife recorded an album of Frank Sinatra yes. covers called "Allow Us to Be Frank"? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and, and we as a nation did. <laughs> and there were there were four of them, I think. Yeah, so it was. Are, it was were, post, they, were, were there five Brian. at the time? Yeah, post Brian. So like one of them gets to be um, Frank Sinatra. One of them gets to be Dean Martin. No, they're all Frank Sinatra. Sammy Davis Jr. It's allow us to be Frank. But that that Rat Pack thing. No, they're I all lo- Frank Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> Are they at least different stages of Frank Sinatra's life and career? <laughs> Who is Frank Prime? No, they're just all Frank Sinatra. I don't know what the to tell you. Alternate version, <laughs> and, and they can't occupy the same space. Yeah. Other, other, like if they ran into each other, it'd be like time cop. Um, <laughs> cause the universe to explode yeah um sorry <laughs> okay um, so- which one is joey bishop there is no joey bishop they're all frank <laughs> 
which one's Jerry Lewis? Um, all right, so the the argument that I was going to make in the most half-hearted manner possible, because I think this is an immensely charming and charismatic film. I think it's hugely important, uh, and I really like it, but I also don't love it. And I, I think for me, this is ground zero for everything that I love about the romantic comedy and certain elements of the romantic comedy that I think don't always go to nice places. I think that there's elements of this that you look at and you can trace its lineage and they don't end in places that are particularly nice. Um, I think that there's aspects of the movie that seem maybe a bit cynical and a bit calculated in their efforts to be populist. You need a sock I, in the nose, Darren. I do I do need a sock in the nose. But anyway, sorry, so that... that sorry. And again, I say, I say that thinking Gable and Colbert are fantastic. I think it's an, a beautifully made film. I think it's incredibly charming, incredibly funny. But that would be what would kind of hold it back for me. Um, and, and again, we've talked on the podcast before. Uh, I have a conflicted relationship with, like, code era Hollywood with kind of 1930s and 1940s Hollywood um, where I, I kind of I find myself more interested in what's not there than what is but anyway so that's that's my kind of take there but uh, all right then before we jump into the spoiler zone Kira if listeners have not already seen It Happened One Night would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device um well there's there's two aspects to this question in that you know if, if you have not seen it happen one night the number of activities i would say do not stop what you're doing to go watch it happen one night right now is is vanishingly small like like saving small <laughs> children from burning buildings sort of territory but i mean in ter- in terms of being worried about spoilers you already know what happens in it happen one night you mightn't think you do but unless you are an infant who has never seen a movie before, you do. <laughs> if you're one of those small children who are being saved from the burning <laughs> building, and there's a guy with, like, headphones on, it's like, could you take them out, please? <laughs> I appreciate you trying to save these these children from this burning building, but we're, we're trying to explain some things. It's like, oh, it's a podcast I'm listening to. Is it it's good? Very, it's very intense. The guest is good. The guest is always fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um but I, I do like, by the way, the implication that, like, unlike Sleepless in Seattle, where one of the leads dies at the climax. <laughs> yeah, you have, you have no idea what Sleepless in Seattle holds. But sorry, sorry to cut you off there, Kira. I beg your pardon, my fault. When they get to the top of the Empire State Building, you know, it just it goes in a really dark direction. And, <laughs> and Moby's God moving over the face of the water starts playing in the background. Um <laughs> Um, okay, but um, uh, so yes, that that is a recommendation. Yes. <laughs> and, and Andrew, <laughs> if listeners have not seen it happen one night and are not rescuing a child from a burning building, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it happen one night to a local device? Um, run, don't walk from your burning building. <laughs> and, um, um, yes, yes, I would. Um, you can see this on google or youtube i'm sure there are other providers um we are not i watch on dvd oh excellent i thought i thought the dvd was all scratched up but it just had dust on it i just cleaned it off and then it was perfect and i was like oh great if anyone yeah. has any dusty dvds at home that they think might be scratched <laughs> try, try wiping the dust just... off you never know what you might find yeah. do you know there was a thing where there were certain players would like you would think that your DVD or CD would work in were were um 
were rubbish and you'd never get them to work again. And then you'd put them into some swish player and they'd, they'd play like there were no issue at all. Um, and blowing off the dust. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so get yourself a good DVD player or blow the dust off. Either or. You can leave the dust or on both. and put it in. Yeah, or both. Just if you want to double, don't, double don't double. put dust on things and put them in. <laughs> like don't don't add additional dust, definitely. <laughs> don't That's add not. additional dust. Darren puts away his big bag of dust. <laughs> dust. These are the insights that people tune into this podcast for. Um, and for myself, I would wholeheartedly recommend watching it. I think it is a charismatic, a very charming movie. Um, I think there's a lot to recommend it. I think like as a glimpse of old st- old fashioned kind of Hollywood charm, you're hard pressed to come, come up with something that more embodies the era in which it was made. So with that in mind, then we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Once I was happy, but now I'm forlorn. So, Kira, what is It Happened One Night about for you? Um, so what the film is literally about uh, is, like, the plot is that you've got Ellie Andrews, a wealthy heiress, uh, played by Claudette Colbert, uh, who runs away to be with her new husband, uh, King Wesley, aviator. And on the <laughs> night bus from Miami to New York, she meets Peter Warren, uh, played by Kirk Label. <laughs> Clark Gable, um, a, a recently fired newspaper reporter, and they can't stand each other yes. until they fall in love. <laughs> I love how into it Andrew is, by the way. <laughs> um, but what it's about for me is that, you know, it invented possibly my favorite type of film, as well as being one of my absolute favorite films in its genre. Um yeah, and like I said, it, as well as literally being the first screwball comedy, it's so hard to imagine where the broader romantic comedy genre would have gone without it happened one night. That it's it's yeah, that it's almost a disservice to its influence to say it invented the screwball comedy. And you were you were talking about it as kind of a, a code film, but I think it exists in this really interesting place in film history where it's like the very 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 last gasp of the pre code era, right? Like. The code came into yeah. a force just a couple of months after it was released. So it's yeah. got this kind of like sexy, risque flavor of pre-code. But it's also, you know, late enough into the sound era that they figured out how to move cameras again. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and it's so influential on what came after, even as it's a film that couldn't have been made just a year later. Like in terms of the, you know, the, the walls of Jericho. The undressing and, in the bedroom and, and that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they literally, they, spoilers zone, they they literally have sex before they get married. But they don't kiss on screen, yeah, though. Like, that, but that's, they have that's sex the weird before balance. they get married. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
But like, I feel that's that's the weird tension for me with it. And again, this is the thing where I think Andrew Saris's idea of like definition of a screwball comedy is a sex comedy without the sex. Um, and the idea that you have, you know, the, the kind of the in the world of the screwball comedy, as Sikoff says, there's one primary axiom: hatred is no reason to give up on a relationship. Just because two people seem to despise each other doesn't mean that they're not in love. But you have this idea in the screwball comedy that you're sublimating. This, like, idea of sexual attraction, sexual desire, sexual energy. And because you can't express it physically on screen because of American Puritanism, you have this, like, idea of it coming out through the dialogue and the banter and the weird kind of dissonance between the two. And I just, I, I find that, that's the thing that I find interesting and kind of frustrating about the 30s and 40s movies, is that, like... We we talked about like uh, Ernest Lubitz last year when we did um when we did sorry like uh to be or not to be for example and Lubitz was very good at kind of insinuating this stuff but there's a weird insistent kind of wholesomeness to this which is is kind of weird. I don't get it, that it, at all. I mean okay. the the hitchhiking scene alone is just where she hooks up she, like she pulls up her skirt to like. Show yeah. show her leg to pull the car over and like the I actually one of my favorite moments in the film is there's that incredibly funny scene where they're like pretending to be a working class married couple and they're like oh when they're arguing yeah, plumber's and, daughter and, and, once a plumber's daughter always a plumber's daughter he didn't make a pass at me I've told you a thousand times um, but at, <laughs> excellent improv but at the <laughs> At the end of that scene, um, after the detective, they're trying to trick these detectives into not recognizing um, Ellie. And after they leave, uh, Clark Gable starts buttoning up her her um, cardigan or shirt or what, whatever it is. Um, and it's incredibly intimate. Like it, it's it's yeah. this incredible. I feel like there's. I get what you're certainly in like later screwball comedies. I think the it's much more the that the sexual stuff is like sublimated. But in in it happened one night, like the moment where she's undressing on the other side of the the walls of Jericho, and she and you have the shot of him in silhouette. He's in silhouette in the background. It's a beautiful shot from Joseph Walker. But he, I, but when she when she throws her her underthings over the like over the the yeah. the towel and the the, the quote unquote wall and it's I, I don't know I think it's it's I mean obviously it's not you know pornographic but I think this it's definitely sex is much more to the fore than it is in in later films I'd agree with that yeah I, and and I don't I don't think there is that kind of um naivety either from um um from Ellie Andrews um uh, character either. Yeah. I think she they they are both they are both sexual um people. I think that comes across from the first line they share. <laughs> it's like um what is it? You're you're She lands um, on his lap and he says you're you're welcome bring your to parents drop over in for dinner. Anytime. No, it, it's, bring your parents next time, isn't it? It's oh, no. it's it's before that. Okay. He says that that upon which you sit is mine. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. You're right. <laughs> and, and she 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 looks up at him, kind of like and she is. 
maybe maybe he hasn't even understood the the kind of innuendo, but I think she has. Um, and like there, there, I I don't think this movie is very kind of um, naive or innocent or puritanical at all. Um, and and there 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 is a kind of a with respect to the the tension and the kind of sublimation of 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 it. I think I think if 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 it's a romantic comedy, you need either that or some replacement of that um dynamic when they can't just kind of meet and immediately want to be together <laughs> and have no obstacles kind of in their way that any story is about kind of um uh, well, I think that's the argument that Molly Haskell makes for example about like why romantic comedies suck now is that like young people are too busy having sex <laughs> so when <clears throat> The problem with modern romantic comedies is that if two attractive people meet and want to have sex, they can just have sex, and there's no yeah. social like stigma or prevention. It's like, like oh, prevention. do I like this person or not? It's like, <laughs> let's have sex and then find out, and then, then uh, figure out. Like Molly Molly Haskell's argument is, yeah, basically, like so. The worst thing that happened to the romantic comedy is like liberalization <laughs> of America and like the the kind of slow removal of puritanical values because they really added dramatic tension to these kind of movies. So I, I can see. <laughs> I, I can I can kind of see the argument that you're making there, which I do find kind of. I don't of, know if I'm but, making that argument. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, I okay, no, maybe not I, that I mean, exact I argument. I mean, just but. kind of like tension in the sense of like, like will 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 these two get it together? And what it is is it it's 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 the arc of of a story and the development of characters. Yeah. It's kind of like because people want things. But maybe what they want is not what they need, and at some point, kind of. But it, it it's the, the the it's a kind of a um a cliche almost that it that's um but it makes for a great story, you know. Yeah. Where, yeah, and that and that that's what 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 makes them great. It's not that it's not that one person doesn't want to be with the other person, and is has been like gaslit or fooled into um into falling in love with them which is which is in fairness what maybe what Darren is kind of alluding to when he says when he talks about some of the kind of influence that it's had I, I, oh, I, I that is not <laughs> what I, I'm alluding to just to be clear but we can go oh, back not? to that oh okay not, sorry but no. but but no no I, I I think there is something um um no I beg your pardon because the, the, no, the, no 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 the um no, I, 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 I think this works well. I believe in both characters, um, more than I do for like um, some like it hot. Um, I, I didn't think that that love was earned, even though I liked the movie. You know, that that's that, just because that you I, hated the Tony Curtis character. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> like our big but, takeaway from it, some like it hot, which is the movie we love, is that the Tony Curtis character is just awful. <laughs> yeah, um. and and that, that he doesn't have that journey. Yeah. Like the, the well, that, that, that film's about like, Jack London. Yes, yes, yes that absolutely yes. is, and him, um, and and arguably Sugar as well, like to a certain extent as well. But like the the Tony Curtis character is the character who has the least. He's Jerry. No, he's Joe, isn't he? He's Joe. Which one of them's Joe, and which one's Jerry? Uh, um, Jack Jack Lemon is Jerry, Jerry and changes. Okay. Uh, his like female name is Daphne. But yeah, yeah, and okay, and cool. and Tony Curtis is Joe, so Joe and changes it to Josephine. Um, yes. So like, 
so yeah, like the thing there is that like Curtis is arguably the one of the three who doesn't have an arc. Like his big arc is how many impersonations can he do? Can he do a Cary Grant impersonation? He can. Uh, on top of this, he can. He can do <laughs> he a very can. good one. There's no real arc there. There's no real <laughs> development or growth. It's like, hey, um, hey, it's at the beginning. It's like, hey, stop, stop trying to, stop trying to do that impression, Joe. It's never going to happen. It's like, I'll and show then you. finally, I'll show you yeah. all. Yeah. Um, so yes, that, I think we we solved the problem with some like it hot a movie that we all absolutely adored. Um, but okay, well, you mentioned okay, so the the to put it out there to get it out of the way to to basically bury this, and so we can forget about the thing that I here's why I'm wrong. Here's uh, why I'm wrong, basically, uh, and I acknowledge that I am probably wrong, and I'm putting my hands up and saying no, I am it, definitely wrong. I'm, but I sorry, I tease you, Darren, but no. like it, you're you're you're. You're, you're allowed to have an opinion about movies. I, I know. I know. I know. Sorry. I'm being no, facetious. Not. <laughs> not in this case. Um, in a, Dry but okay, can. my, <laughs> my <laughs> would, you, would you like to change that opinion or trade it for a better one? Um, but my, my issue with it is, and I, I see the kind of roots of a lot of the kind of later romantic comedies where you have this, this class thing that runs through romantic comedies, and it frequently runs through romantic comedies, um, but it's always weirdly gendered. And again, it's tied to the movie as a product of the Great Depression and a movie that is about America kind of coming together and an understanding and kind of resentment of the upper class from the lower class. Like we mentioned the whole thing about a large part of the appeal of like getting it happened one night commissioned was that it's a movie about buses because regular people travel in buses because, you know, we can't afford to take trains anymore. In fact, there's an early point early on where the, like the bodyguards or the sort of the detective agencies looking for are like, Ellie Andrews take a bus? Like what planet do you think this is on? She's not going to take a bus. That's for poor people. Um, but it, like you have this. Sorry. Well, it, it's it's that it's that like kind of happy medium between kind of like too too poor for a train, but not poor enough that you are uh, like riding on the boxcars. Well, we do we do see those people later yeah. on. We do see those those kind of like traveling migrant workers later on. Or yes, yeah. um, like see when them and think like, oh, that was an option. <laughs> like, but, like you're rich enough to know what buses are but um but like too rich that you wouldn't know what a boxcar is i guess i don't uh, know okay but my, my my argument though is that like so you have that running through it as well and there's this big capra-esque kind of like again we're all in it together stuff where you have like this idea of like like capra's fascination with this idea of america as a community and this idea of a nation that pulls together and you can see it on the bus when they all do the man with the flying trapeze and it becomes like a show-stopping number and everybody traveling on this bus is on this bus together and we're all one nation under god we have one common purpose but there's this thing that runs through the movie in its treatment of of Andrews where it seems like it constantly needs to humble her it constantly needs to bring her down um and it that's a thing that I see frequently in kind of later romantic comedies and you know again bad examples uh and like not indicative of the genre as a whole but things like say Overboard for example where you have like Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn two actors who also share tremendous chemistry being married in real life but you have the whole premise of that movie is well she's rich and she needs to be taken down several pegs Arthur. and this carpenter um yeah um who's, I mean you could argue millions? 
could arguably go with um what's the other one? Oh, like even things like say the ugly truth to get like it what happens to it happened one night if you strip out all the charisma charm wish and everything that makes it a good movie you end up with like that jared butler Catherine heigl situation where it's like look at this man of the people who understands how the world is and is worldly and knowledgeable and is going to teach this woman who has no sense of how the world really is how the world really operates and I kind of, I do, that's, that's the that's bit that I kind of have difficulty with. It's the thing. I mean, this is about a woman who... She needs somebody who's going to suck her in the face every day. No, no, no. This is about a woman okay, okay, who, lacks, okay, okay. who lacks agency. And is trying to, to, to um, dis- d- uh, discover agency. And, 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 and it's, it's about discovering kind of the, the charm of simplicity. It is, but it's also she has to be taught it. He has to like take away her purse from her at one point, for example. She has to like learn about she the. She was doing a sun. fine job of losing her purse. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think that without his help. In, in terms of what Darren said about you know late, later romantic comedies um, having you know the woman needs to be humbled by the the man who is worldly and knowledgeable, I think one of the differences is that late like particularly in the last like 30 years or so a lot of a lot of those films totally strip out the class dynamics that are so core to what's going on and it happened one night because it's to me anyway ellie ellie andrews isn't being humbled because she's a woman well i don't i don't really like the word humble but we'll, i'll just use it for a second okay sorry, sorry. Um, that she isn't being humble because she's a woman she's being humble because she's um extremely wealthy like she she is you know the elite she's the one percent and she's getting a taste of how ordinary people live and that dynamic in like like katherine heigl movies or whatever there's not like just everybody's rich and lives in a fabulous apartment and and it makes it a lot less resonant so like in that scene on the bus there is an element of that it's america one nation being together but it's also like this portrait of working class solidarity because they're on a bus <laughs> and like Ellie is the only person on that bus who is of the upper classes. Um, and it's because she is turning away from her wealthy family, you know, and, and running away. Um, and obviously the guy she's marrying it, or has already married. We should probably mention that she's, yeah. she's married to King Wesley already. Yeah. Um and she's going around like staying in rooms with a strange man. Um but not consummated. Yeah. I think. Yes. In old, yeah, yes. They, they in old. Like and, then, and then second he marriage. Gets paid That's off. He gets he gets paid off, which is part of the money is a big thing in the film. In terms of uh like him taking her purse. Like she she's spending her money um like recklessly and it's not because oh she's a silly woman it's because she's never had to worry about money in her entire life she has always effectively had infinite money so the idea of spending like several dollars on a box of chocolates 
which is a in 1934 in, in money. 1934 money, you know, just just seems reasonable to her, even though she only has like five dollars. And the big and this this leads to kind of the big conclusion of the film, where P- Peter he goes to meet her father about a financial matter related to your daughter, and it seems like I mean, it doesn't really seem like, but like it's presented as that he's going to collect the reward because her father put up a, like a, a reward of like ten ten thousand yeah, dollars. You could buy like eight thousand box of chocolate with that. <laughs> yeah, to yeah, ten thousand dollars for the return of his daughter, basically. Um, but he just wants thirty two forty to cover his expenses, <laughs> and that's it. And he brings like an itemized list. And it's kind of this moment of proving that he loves her, that like that he's not interested in her money, which is part of it, right? Like the, that he loves her as a person. Um, and that's really contrasted with King Wesley, who the annulment goes through because her father pays him $100,000, which proves yeah. that he didn't really care about her because... Even though we hardly see King Wesley at all. Um, well, I mean, he's above it all. He's literally flying in yeah, a plane yeah. to get that and contrast he, with the bus, he, you know? What kind of a contraption was that? <laughs> was that a plane? Call, they do they call it, like it an aerogyro? Autogyro? An autogyro. It's an autogyro. It's an autogyro. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. Da- it says yeah. Darren. Darren is used to such things. <laughs> <laughs> you mean you've never gone up in an autogyro? No, it used to be like a little helicopter, but it's also a pl- Anyway, sorry. It was before we had helicopters, they were autogyros. <laughs> Can I um, can I say I I I I like the way that those two themes interact of kind of love and finance that 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 did because there's a moment when her um, father uh, says to her, "Aren't you happy?" And that's the kind of uh, question of kind of you know um, economic actors. And they don't like it's 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 what a lot of uh, midlife crises are about. It's like you've done everything that you were meant to do in order to get to where you you need to 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 be. Where you know you've 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 gone to work every day and you've worked hard for the promotion and um and you know you've bought into the entire economic system. Um, and either either you haven't gotten to where you wanted to be and you're disappointed that you haven't or you have got to where you want to be and you're realizing that that's not what life is about and that it hasn't made you happy and I I, 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 I feel like like maybe I'm reading too much into it but I felt like coming from his um, mouth that that, that uh, line was very meaningful both in terms of the kind of um, socioeconomic kind of background of 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 the movie or the point it was trying to make, but also the point about love and about love being kind of like this abstract concept that that is worth a lot more than something as meaningless as um cold hard currency. Um, I guess you can't take it with you. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, and, and we we should probably like again now that we've done the the Darren stupid complaint section of the podcast, we should we should acknowledge 
Like, I do actually think that, like, one of the things that is, is massively important about it, it happened one night, is that it was a movie that in 1934 acknowledged the reality of what was happening in America at the time. In that it was a movie very much about the, the working class, about not having any money, about having to travel in buses. And about the being... rich. It's the, yeah. it's the haves and the have-nots. The, it's the kind of the old Detroits and it's the Delta cities. Obligatory Robocop <laughs> Thank you. Um, but like like it is and like contemporary reviews even kind of single this out where like you have William Troy writing in The Nation saying and you know as for the content of the film which may possibly be distinguished from the treatment one can remark only that it is authentically indigenous without being in any way novel or striking. An honest documentation of familiar American actualities becomes in a Hollywood film more absorbing than intrigue in Monte Carlo or pig sticking in Bengal. The idea that it like it for audiences watching it happened one night in 1934, it was like at, transgressive to see mm. their world reflected on screen. And like, that's the thing about the movie actually, and it's kind of legacy and its performance is that when it opened and, and keep in mind Capra, like in his autobiography, um, has argued that, you know, it was this movie was saved by small town America, that like when it opened in New York and Los Angeles, it was dismissed and forgotten about. That reviewers were, and I quote from Capra here, caught with their adjectives down. Now, Capra is not being entirely fair. The movie was very, very warmly received by critics. We'll include some of those in the show notes. But it is worth noting that in big cities in 1934, the film only screened for roughly about a week. It, it did relatively well at the box office and then just kind of disappeared. Columbia had an, had an average, like they, they kind of thought it was dead on arrival. Like they didn't, Yeah. they launched a minimal advertising campaign and were just kind of like, let's get rid of this <laughs> off the books. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, but then well, we have to release it because it has Clark Gable. <laughs> um. We come from MGM. <laughs> I mean, we paid two and a half grand a week for this. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, we just delivered, like, what, 2,000 boxes of chocolate to him every week. Um, I think that we should measure inflation through boxes of chocolate. But, like, it is, like, the thing is that the movie caught on, how the movie became a classic and how it earned its money back is that it played really well in rural America. There are stories of small town exhibitors. Uh, basically had been protesting the gangster films and the sophisticated comedies that studios are booking in, looking for, and I quote here, simple romances. Um, you had this idea of Ed Sikoff pointing out that the film didn't make its money in big city movie palaces, but in smaller, ordinary theatres, where audiences weren't surrounded by the trappings of luxury, and that in those places, that was where the film touched a nerve. And you would have situations where this was playing in rural America a year after its initial release because audiences were still turning out and it was still selling out engagements. And I think it's kind of interesting that it's a movie that really connected with a side of America that even in 1934 didn't always see itself on screen. Um, and it's kind of amazing, like, because you you have that argument today about, like, the, the engagement with, like, populist cinema, whether cinema is engaged with audiences and whether, you know, people in the middle of the country are particularly interested in seeing awards contenders. I find it interesting that, like, it happened one night, managed to just, like, resonate and kind of, like, spark with them and then go on to become, like, a surprisingly unlikely Best Picture winner. It was the first uh, Columbia picture to win Best Picture. Now, to be fair... They were slightly emboldened by it because I believe that Frank Capra's 1933 Lady for a Day had managed to secure four Oscar nominations. Um, and so they were like, yeah, we, we might actually have a chance here. But it is kind of interesting that, yeah, this is a movie that 
like didn't just appeal to like critics and tastemakers. It it kind of found its audience for the, in for the Dust Bowl. Yeah. yeah. Um like for, a movie that really spoke to the, the depression era. All these people had um their their DVDs were just caked. <laughs> 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 well, you know, do not watch Interstellar. What you have to do is you have to put exactly. the disc facing. You have to put it facing down on the table, so that you could just pick it up and put it in the player. Um, yeah. Like this, is a movie for simple people with stubble who eat their food out of cans <laughs> and walk around with a bindle. They, they smell a pie, <laughs> and then they wander over to to an open window where the pie is cooling. <laughs> Um, but I want to ask, like, Kira, this as somebody who's, like, very fond of Capra. Like, a lot of critics point to this as the movie where Capra becomes the, the director that he would, like, later be. The, the director responsible for things like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, uh, things like It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, his next movie was Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, which is very similarly kind of wholesome and earnest. And people point to It Happened One Night as a turning point. Because the, you, we mentioned that scene that you have on the bus where we, we all come together, we all sing songs, we're all in this. And then you have the story of, like, the plight of the mother who gets, like, the last dollar um, you know the the child who's like talking about her his mother having to like leave and travel for work. Is this like, is this a point where it feels like kind of Capra is becoming a, a kind of a populist, like saccharine, all American Ed Hopper style kind of filmmaker? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I w- I will say, in fairness, about the bus scene that it ends with um because the bus driver uh, claps, <laughs> the bus crashes. So it it does have like a little bit of a it's it's not like totally a hundred percent just yay everybody or whatever, um, but yeah I mean the yeah that that scene with the the mother and the son I think that it I can I can understand why people might think it's like a bit laying it on thick. But it, um, I think it highlights the film's themes like that we were talking about, about the Great Depression and stuff. It kind of like signposts the more subtle stuff, like seeing the people traveling to try and find work and stuff. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very much like, hello, I am now Frank Capra. I don't know who I was before, but now I'm Frank Capra. Frank Capra has entered the chat. Um. Yeah, it it captures the the kind of destitution of it quite well. Like she has to spend pretty much an entire day in Jacksonville. <laughs> um, like no one should ever have to. Um, <laughs> When she, we apologize when to our listeners in Jacksonville. Um, <laughs> when when she's getting off the bus and. And uh, and Peter's like, you'll never make it in time. And she's like, oh, they'll wait for me. And it sounds like she has some mm. big plan, but her big plan is just to go, you'll wait for me, won't you? <laughs> and then leave. <laughs> and then they don't. And she didn't even bring her ticket with her. God, she's a mess. My favorite detail about that story is that like when the Oscars were presented in February 1935, and we'll come back to like, there's some interesting kind of, and Andrew's eyes are going to glaze over, but there's some interesting no, no, Oscar no, sorry. around I, this I movie. Was, no, 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 not yet. Room. Um. <laughs> no, your eyes aren't glazing yet. Give me, give me time, Andrew. Um, but like, so like for the ceremony in 1935, 
um, Colbert was not seen as a favorite to win. The the film's victory was seen as something of a surprise, and all the awards that went to the actors. Colbert had apparently already left to go to the railway station to board a train to New York to go to another party with some other friends of hers. Um, apparently, she found out at the station that they had awarded her the prize. So she literally told the driver of the train to hold it for her while she went to Los Angeles, while she went into town, picked up an Oscar from Shirley Temple, did a photo op, did press interview around it, and then went back to the train station where the train full of people had been held so that she could go to the West, sorry, go to the uh, the East Coast and kind of party with her friends, which I kind of sure love as well. Sure, once they saw the Oscar, they understood. <laughs> there was like, like completely like, worthwhile. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I have we no thought problem it was for something it. phony. <laughs> yeah, something that didn't matter. Um, well, that that just shows you know the kind of high class service you get on a train instead of a bus. Yeah, yeah. If she was on a bus, they certainly wouldn't have waited for her. <laughs> That's what it's, it's the extra few dollars for first class <laughs> that gets them to stop the train for. Yeah. It covers you in case of unexpected Oscar win. It's it's, it's in small print down the bottom there. Um, She's and we should be on her way to a party. <laughs> it's like I'll stay at this uh, Oscars, but I have to leave <laughs> at six. Yeah, it seems like Claudia Colbert's whole life was based around like parties she needed to go to because that was also yeah. why they had to finish up filming. Uh, have one night in four weeks. Like, it's just, she just had a very active social calendar that could not be messed with. Um, and, like, by the way, we should mention, by the way, Colbert is apparently, she was an amazing presence. Um, again, there's some wonderful press from 1934 where you have these male reporters who have no idea how to talk to Colbert Colbert, where the interview <laughs> is constantly filled with lines like, and Colbert contemplates the answer, and then uh, contemplates the question, and then offers an answer that we cannot read. <laughs> uh, which I've- <laughs> I'm kind yeah, of amazing. Yeah. We'll include... it, it would it would destroy your idea of like um you know how women are meant to behave. <laughs> Yeah, in 1934. Um, yeah. I mean, like, the, the, one of the press is like, yes, as soon as the Paramount executive was in the room, Colbert was on her best behavior, but at several points they had to leave to get coffee. And then stuff got real, um, which is kind of interesting. Say, and then um, stuff got real? Okay. No, in 1934, <laughs> unfortunately. No, and, and, and then the male reporters got distinctly uncomfortable, I think, is the line that they use whenever yeah. the Paramount executive was out of the room. Like, um, there was so much... <laughs> Like, um, there was so much starch in those days. Everything was so stuffy, if it feels like. And, like, the, it's a kind of, like, a, a myth that was perpetrated, like, at the time and has been perpetrated since. It's like the whole, sorry, I noticed in another movie that we've spoken about. It's like the, and it's not really to do with the movie that we're talking about, but just, just, just um, that's probably enough. I should just not back to the future. I was um, like about that myth about the uh, about the past, about like yes, every, and everything. how pure it was. And yeah, how, yeah, yeah. And that that's something that they tried to perpetrate at the time. And certainly, like Ireland in the eighties, which was um, you know the United States in the fifties, <laughs> um, was 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 just was just like that as well. It's like oh, what would people think? We must um, we 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 we. We must like um, you know avoid any suggestion of anything kind of like uh, real, I guess. 
Uh, well, here, like, just very quickly, here's a quote from uh, Chat with Miss Colbert from March 24th, 1935, published in the New York Times, not credited to a journalist. <laughs> it wasn't so bad while the publicity men were about. Their presence seemed to lessen the marked feminine influence. With oh, the moral Jesus. support of a fellow man, one dared question Miss Colbert about this and that phase of picture making. But the minute they left the room, there was trouble. <laughs> Tell us, Miss Colbert. What constitutes charm in a woman? That, confided Miss Colbert to the feminine inquisitor, is a tough question. Tough or otherwise, Miss Colbert waded into it and emerged after a mental tussle with a commendable definition of charm, whether in a woman or a man. As much as this was the female contingent's point of attack, a male's eavesdropper must remain mum on Miss Colbert's observations. Similarly, he must treat with reticence. Miss Colbert's admission that she weighed 110 pounds, had not trouble with her diet, could and did eat everything she would, uh, in fact, liked to put on a few pounds for good measure or whatever it would. Shrinking deeper and deeper into his chair, the reporter steeled himself for further intimate disclosures. What Miss Colbert did in the way of beauty baths, or whether she believed a woman's crowning glory was an heir, or was she prepared to assert that curves were on the wane? The blow was poised, but the cudgel did not fall. One of Paramount's wandering messengers popped into the room again, and male supremacy got its second wind. The New York Times, March 1937, uncredited. Sorry, 35, uncredited. A woman wrote that. That is a piece of satire. (laughs) You really, really, really hope that it is. Um, Like, while we're talking about Colbert, um, like, worth acknowledging... Colbert was an actor who argued that she had like this. This is insane to me. Colbert was apparently a woman who thought that she had issues with her image. Um, and she published an article uh, in 1930s Glamour magazine where she like literally picked at her own face where she'd say. And again, this is this is like lines from an interview that I feel like I have to read in the style of a 30s newsreader. But Claudette finds facial defects where no one else ever has. She says her cheekbones are too high. <laughs> What's wrong with Claudette's features, whether individually or collectively? (laughs) Not one thing, say the critics. But she says, my chin is too pointed. Claudette's eyes are assets, no doubt about that. But she thinks they're too far apart. When she was little, she poked pebbles into her nose. And now she thinks her nose is all wrong. When Claudette was born, her father said her mouth was too large. She wonders, believe it or not, if he wasn't right. But beauty experts call her beautiful. Um, and apparently, like, Claudette... Thank you, beauty experts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're always there to pay a comment, you know? I mean, um, compliment. It's They're just gentlemen underneath it all. Um, but, like, she's, like, one of the things about Colbert, and it's interesting, like, once you watch it, you kind of notice, or once you hear it, you can't unsee it, is that she believed that her left side of her face was the good side. And so she would, like... You know, she took the studio's makeup analysts at their word when they advised that she should only be photographed from the left, that being her good side. She was known to demand that entire sets be rebuilt if the position of a doorway called for her to enter with her right side exposed to the camera. She even covered the right side of her face with green grease paint so her cameraman would remember her best angles, uh, which is stunning as well. Um, And like, so that's kind of interesting when we kind of talk about Colbert and we talk about like, 1930s and we talk about hollywood we talk about like the idea of kind of female beauty on screen i found that stuff like fascinating and kind of depressing and uh yeah perhaps a sign of how little things have actually changed um all right sorry just while we're talking then about um the popularity and the populism of it like this is one of the things i find interesting about the movie is that it 
this is a movie about people playing roles. Like a lot of this movie, and again, maybe it's just a, a kind of a general aspect of kind of farce or a general aspect of kind of screwball comedy or romantic comedy. But so much of this movie is about characters pretending to be things that they are not and watching them play kind of roles. So you have, you know, things like, you know, Peter playing a Warner Brothers gangster film, you know, gangster oh, character to scare so off Shapely. Yeah. So it's um, like a, you get in the alley. <laughs> 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 uh, but you have things like, you know, him singing like the Big Bad Wolf from Disney's Silly Symphonies the previous year. You have like that scene that we mentioned where they improvise the marriage argument, for example. And I mean, even things like you could argue along the lines of like when he's introduced, when he's like he's talking in the mm-hmm. phone and he gets fired. And it's that wonderful, like that wonderful shot from Capra that's king. intensely closed up. Yes, that's it exactly. He is the king. And again, it's notable that you have this situation where she goes from like being married to the king to being married to this king. Um, and obviously, like, you know, he, he'd be the king of Hollywood as well outside of this. And this is one of the movies that kind of solidified that. But I find it interesting how much of this is performative. And how much of this is about the idea of performing and pretending to be something versus actually being something and whether there's a difference and kind of what that means. Is there anything there, perhaps? Or? Well, yeah. yeah. The, sorry. No, no uh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's... there's um, th- this is a random comparison that should probably get cut, but... Nothing gets cut. In the Fulci Spaghetti Western 4 of the Apocalypse, um, two characters pretend to be married and sort of over the course of the film, the pretending to be married ceases to, to be pretending. Like, they never, uh, like, get married in an official sense, but they clearly, like, the 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 lie becomes true through acting it out. And I thought about that watching It Happened One Night This Time um, because there's a similar kind of thing where they do they they do frequently pretend to be married like when they have to stay in a, in a cabin together. Obviously, two, a, a single man and a single woman wouldn't be rented a cabin, so they have to, you know, lie. And when they get in the, uh, in the car with, uh, they got, when they're hitchhiking and they get in the car and, and he's like, ah, just married. And then he sings <laughs> yeah. Young and, People and- in Love Are Never Hungry. And then later, <laughs> Peter you have the sings it fear. again <laughs> as if it's like a real song. <laughs> Amazing. Um, but yeah, but that the, scene is incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> I'm just laughing just thinking about it. But the. Um, yeah, there's the the fact that they're on the road because it's very much a road movie. Th- like the the road is like no place. Like they're they're in all these different places, but they're also not really in any place, and that creates this like freedom where they can kind of play with with different roles. Um, you know, they're not especially in contrast to um, to Ellie's old life. Um, with her father and being very much like uh, hemmed in, in a cage, pretty very, much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like she, she, she says to to Peter that it's the first time she's been alone with a man, um, and it's a wonder she's not terrified. But she's not terrified because, and I, I don't know. There's just there's some interesting stuff there, definitely in terms of 
performance. And I definitely, it's the fact that they perform so well with each other kind of enables them to fall in love. Like the, the once a plumber's daughter, always a plumber's daughter argument. Like they just so naturally bounce off one another. And it, it it's interesting that uh, like the the thing you say about the road movie as well that uh, it occurs to me that like the, the the interesting thing about it is that they're they're on a road towards kind of somewhere where neither of them really want to go, um as it and there there's yeah and you spoke earlier about this being influential, there's this kind of like um there's this island in the Pacific, it's kind of like 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 um from heat. Or <laughs> um, uh, Fiji in the Truman Show, or like um, so, what is it called? So, so Waranejo in in the Shawshank Redemption. There is this kind of place that they that um that he it's wants aspirational, to get to. Yeah. yeah, that she wants to go with him, but that's not where they're going. Um, yeah. So and I'd, I mean, I'd... when they're three hours away from New York, she makes some stop for the night. Yes, and. And they both have to pretend it's not because she doesn't want this to be over. They have to pretend that, oh, we can't arrive at three in the morning. That would be mm. crazy. And, you know, and both kind of like, oh, they're so in love with each other, but they can't, they can't say it. Ah, so great. <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, like, I think there's maybe something in there as well. You mentioned that idea of roads as liminal spaces and the idea of performance and playing along, like the idea of that being it a kind of an American movie where class doesn't really exist where it's that kind of fantasy that America has that it it unlike Europe mm-hmm. it doesn't have a cl- or America believes it doesn't have a class yeah. system yeah. it believes that like mobility is a thing so like roads just take you places and you go and you can be whoever you want to be and very similar to like you mentioned I think earlier Andrew mentioned like Paper Moon for example which is a movie set at this time even though it was made 40 years later but it's that idea of like con artists and the idea of kind of playing and reinventing yourself and kind of like being between places yeah 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 but I mean particularly like as a road movie this is kind of very much like a you get to invent yourself while you're on you're always in movement you're always a work in progress it's not where you're going it's that you are going at all is the is the kind of like the priority here or the sense of kind of movement there um and I just kind of find that interesting I agree with you but I I don't think it's like a fantasy about America not having a class system because the the American class system is so much a part of the movie it's a fantasy about escaping from the american class system in this yeah. kind of journey okay because and, and then not I serving mean, the the upper classes like that's the egregious thing about the class system like aside from the um like poor being um kind of crushed underfoot or whatever is uh, rich people not being happy <laughs> and, and those are two like, equivalent traumas those yeah. are like those are two things that both need to be solved equally exactly. um, yeah, yeah 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 you see my my poverty would be worthwhile if those rich people could enjoy it on my behalf <laughs> but they can't so the whole system's broken exactly um and we should specifically mention just some some other quick things to kind of mention about this movie and its influence. Like we mentioned this movie belonging on the list because it's one of the most influential movies ever. Apparently that one sequence on the side of the road with him munching a carrot inspired the creation of the character of Bugs Bunny. Wow. Um, yeah, uh, uh, he's called Bugs because that's um, when he's pretending to be a gangster. He says something about about Bugs as like one of the other gangsters. <laughs> 
yeah. So, yeah. And they say Doc as well. They yeah. do, yeah. yeah. So it's it's all there. Yeah, that's apparently like a huge influence there as well. There's also the famous story. And and by the way, this is like we've talked about Gable. We talked about Gable on um uh Gone with the Wind. And we talked about how Gable, despite being like the king of Hollywood and one of the great actors and an actor whose performance we greatly admire, was an actor who maybe didn't always have the greatest ability uh, greatest belief in his own range and his own ability. So there's a sequence here where Gable gets undressed. Um and According to urban legend, often repeated, completely unverified, completely unsourced, apparently the fact that he wasn't wearing an undershirt caused the collapse of undershirt sales until the Second World War brought the industry back from the dead by making it part of the GI uniform. Apparently, like from 1934 to 1940, the men's undershirt sales department collapsed. And apparently that was all down to the fact that Gable wasn't wearing an undershirt when he got undressed here. My favorite detail about this story, though, is the reason why Gable isn't wearing an undershirt. Why he is apparently the first man in Hollywood, in the first man in talkies anyway, to reveal his nipples, apparently. Is because Gable found that he couldn't. Oh, I know. Um, he found that he couldn't act while wearing an undershirt. He couldn't <laughs> deliver his lines. He had difficulty delivering his monologue while wearing an undershirt because he found that it constantly distracted him. So the solution was that they would do it without the undershirt, which I he, kind of love. He's a specimen. He's a great like um, man to wear a suit. As in, like, <laughs> yeah. like it has this like like tapering. It's like the the he has this like tall perfect body, that that and 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 him. Um, wearing... Kira may not be familiar. We do talk about like male the evolution yeah, of male bodies on screen that. quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the big recurring trends. The two fifty is is a man shirtless in this movie, and what does it tell us about the world at that moment? You've never objectified um... women. Don't listen to early episodes. <laughs> uh, sorry. Yeah, Clark Dable is beautiful. Breaking news. <laughs> um, one of the most handsome men in Hollywood is handsome. Um, one last thing, actually, just worth noting. We mentioned the um, like all the romantic comedy cliches. The model of the modern romantic comedy can be traced down here. The final act of this is perhaps one of the most egregious, why don't these two characters just <laughs> communicate to one another examples of the Hollywood form. And that is not a criticism. Um, I just love how the movie kind of like invents the third act <laughs> Like problem that could be solved if these two people had even the. the he he needs he needs to get the money before he proposes. Yeah, but, but like then... it would all be solved if he woke her up and told like <laughs> all of it, like the entire last twenty minutes of the movie would be Real all be avoided. Surprise. He wouldn't even. He wouldn't even have to tell her that she was going to get the money. He'd just be. I need to go out for a few hours. You, I'll be back. You like, wouldn't have a two fifty trope, <laughs> which is drink driving. Um... <laughs> That is very fair. Um, but I, I do kind of like, I love how like you watch romantic comedies today and you're like, man, these are just pale imitations of like the level of like simple communication <laughs> that would solve this problem. Um, well, that's and the way I, do... they, I feel like that's true to life. Like I, I, I think like um, in, in, in relationships, there's so much kind of um, that just goes wrong because of like yeah. communication. Um, excuse Communicating me. Communicating is hard. Yes, yeah, it is yeah. because like you're, you know, that you want you. you Sometimes want to say, you just wake up in the middle of the night and you have to travel to New York in order to get uh, ten thousand dollars, but you just can't say it. 
Well, like, not only do you um, not say things that you really want and ought to say, but you say things that you really ought not to say. And um, and that, that's uh, unfortunately kind of like the lay of the land, I guess. Yeah. Um, all right. I have some stuff I want to talk about about the, the movie's Oscar success, but is there anything else about the movie itself that we're going to talk about that we haven't talked about already? So, Kira, anything jumping out at you? Uh, we haven't talked about Mr. Shapley. Yes. We have. <laughs> I love that Andrew's like, yes, finally. He's a guy on the bus. <laughs> the guy who is always on the and bus. He, um, uh, <laughs> like, he just starts talking. She... Uh, Ellie sits down beside him because she's she's mad at Peter and then he starts talking and he just does not stop talking and he's just, he, he he says like Shapley's the name and that's how I like them and he's talking about how lucky you are to sit beside me because of all the weirdos you get on the bus yeah. and he's just that, he's just insane it's great I love him God bless Shapley and men like him who make all <laughs> the other men look better yeah 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 <laughs> Yeah, like she says something really cutting to him. I can't remember what it is, but then he just like laughs and is like, "Oh, you're great." That's that's, score one for you. I'm gonna keep trying even harder. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's like you're doing enough talking for the two of us, or something along those lines. Yeah, and she can only get out of it when Peter pretends that they're married. He's such a worm as well. It's great. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> like the, he the... sees a picture of her in the paper and he's like ah yes I'll sell her out and then yeah but then <laughs> when he proposes this plan uh, Peter says yeah we've we're 1930s gangsters that kidnapped her um, <laughs> have you got a gash <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll lend you so a machine gun <laughs> it's in the guitar case um, um but like, and again, we should single out that is Roscoe Cairns, um, who also yes. I think popped up in like his Girl Friday as well. He's very, very good here. I mean, the entire ensemble is pretty great. I know that it's obviously the two leads are like two of the best leads to have ever shared a screen in a romantic comedy. But even things like Walter Conley, who plays you know Alexander, who's the, the father, he's very good as well. I'm very funny. Um, yeah. Delivery when he he's like one of his advisors is like, oh, I. I hope she's all right. It's like, of course she's all right. <laughs> what do you mean? It's like, oh, and nothing. Yes, I'm sure she's all right. Then shut up then. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Sorry. And um, we should mention as well, this movie kind of changed the Oscars. Um, again, this is the part where Andrew's eyes glaze over, where it fundamentally changed the way in which the Academy Awards gave out statues uh, in two two quick ways. The first of which was that Colbert's nomination and Colbert's win was a surprise. Everybody expected Betty Davis to get a win for Of Human Bondage that year. And when that didn't happen, there was a huge surprise. And it led to two things. First of all, it led to this was the first time that uh, an external auditing company oversaw the balloting and awarding of the Oscars, which is a tradition that remains in place to today. Um, so congratulations, Claudette Colbert. KPMG. <laughs> or who was it? it PricewaterhouseCoopers. PricewaterhouseCoopers. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you, you know the details of that? Like, that, my favorite detail of that is that, like, it was because he was getting a selfie taken with Emma Stone backstage is why he handed the wrong envelope. He handed the already <laughs> open Emma oh, Stone. I didn't like, know that. 
Emma Stone won her Oscar for Best Actress yeah, and she yeah. came backstage and he was taking a selfie and he had the open envelope in her in his hand which said Emma Stone La La Land <laughs> and that's the envelope that he gave just passively um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm reading a, 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 I have been reading a, a, this is a very me thing to do I'm reading a book about the history of accounting <laughs> and of accountancy and it's uh, that is one of the kind of like opposite like examples <laughs> of accountants, you know, losing their way. <laughs> <laughs> that keeps on repeating throughout the history of the world. Yeah, <laughs> accountants pausing for selfies um, with celebrities. Yeah, um, yeah. If it's not Enron, or, um, it's, or La La Land. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Both two equivalent cultural tragedies, to be clear. <laughs> the um, South Sea bubble. <laughs> um, we, we should also note that, like, the response to the snubbing or perceived snubbing of Davis was so strong, the Academy changed its rules that year to allow write-in ballots. Apparently, Movie Classic magazine printed an indignant reader letter questioning whether Academy voters were nearsighted or simply terrified of Davis's bad girl performance. <laughs> Hollywood championed her so vigorously that for a while the whole town seemed to be one giant indignation meeting, wrote Photoplay magazine. Editorials, articles, telegrams, telephone calls bombarded the austere academy until I'm sure its members eventually concluded it couldn't all be a typographical error. So they allowed like write-in candidates on the ballots that year. It was it was the release of Snyder Cut campaign of its day. <laughs> yeah. It's like things are <laughs> you know, things have not gotten any better, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I can just imagine what Twitter would have been like when Betty Davis was snubbed. Um, like two Betty Davis would have been on <laughs> Twitter. Um, um, you know, but it's yeah, like, like people were never like, yeah, Dark Knight's a pretty good movie. I mean, personally, <laughs> personally, I like The Godfather, but um, like, I, I don't doubt that and, it's good. <laughs> and somewhere behind it, Shawshank Redemption sneaks up with a prison shiv and it's like, I will be the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> Um, that is, by the way, how Shawshank Redemption ended up the greatest movie of all time. Um, Two things but... never happened. Again. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Godfather was never the top movie. <laughs> and the side. Dark Knight was never the top movie either. Yeah. Um, but like basically, so the Academy allowed writing ballots for only one year because <laughs> Warner Brothers figured out the following year that they could basically pressure all of their workers to vote for whoever they wanted to on the ballot. So um, Hal Moore became the only person ever to win an Oscar in a competitive category without being nominated when he won for cinematography on A Midsummer Night's Dream because Warner was like, we see an opening and we're taking it. Um, and that is why the Academy does not allow write-in ballots anymore um so that is that is the kind of impact of it happened one night so before we go before we wrap up anything else we want to talk about anything we haven't discussed with the movie its legacy what we think of it our, our kind of impression of it um... <laughs> okay all right no i don't think so <laughs> like typical nonsense i was typical typical I mean, 250 nonsense typical 250 nonsense at the start like <laughs> i was impressed with her father's kind of uh, and not wasting any of that food like talking into it and then their, her journey throughout the movie is learning that food waste is not cool because one of That's her true. first actions is to knock over that tray and then eventually <laughs> she's eating raw carrots yeah. um 
<laughs> and I mean that that that's that's what the money confiscation is about. Until you learn the value of food, it's not about money. It's about yeah. food. Yeah. How do I know you're not going to just throw those chocolates against the window? <laughs> and, and, she, and she also learns how to properly dunk a donut. Yes, yes. I love that. <laughs> I love how they, into it Andrew was. Yeah, no, but like. I, I, I get very passionate about stuff like that. It's like when people are doing things wrong, I would definitely react like that. Um, um, and um, not that he's right. I think we're both wrong. <laughs> uh, the uh, inappropriate smoking, there's a lot. There's a lot of like smoking in bed, uh, smoking and in on petrol buses. stations, smoking in buses. Um, uh, smoking shapely in, cigar. So uh, smoking in that the, the I think the wedding gown she's in it feels it, lo- it does have the look of something that would just catch fire, but it's probably not. At all. <laughs> what do you call it's that? Probably material? coated in asbestos. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> it looks like it's satin or something. I don't know. Yeah, it looks fantastic. Yeah, she she only wears like three outfits the whole film. Oh yeah, yeah. It's and I think he only wears a couple as well, actually, which is one of the interesting things about it is that like their their characters change, but their their appearance remains constant. He has this kind of suit that he wears towards the end when he's back in the newspapers place, and I feel like I've seen him wear that same suit in other places, and people don't wear that kind of suit anymore. Is where there's like a kind of a belt in the um in the jacket, isn't it? Yeah, in the jacket where where it kind of um. Accentuates his like his shape. Yeah, I guess I didn't lose all of this weight to wear a suit that just goes down. Like it's not only going to taper to my waist, but it's also going to like taper to like the kind of number eight thing. This is where male bodies were in 1934. All right. Well, we normally do the end of the what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something to listeners. So something they're enjoying at the moment. It'd be something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie. But to give Kira a chance to think about it, I'm gonna ask Andrew to go first. I completely forgot. Um, <laughs> I'll 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 recommend I guess some stuff that I've been enjoying lately. Um I saw this is completely uh, maybe n- n- not like kind of um, appropriate to this movie, but I saw the um, the Lost Daughter. I thought it was great. I think I, I think maybe the, Maggie uh, Gyllenhaal's directorial yes, debut. Yeah, exactly. Um, and um, two um, great performances um, in it. Well, arguably three. I mean, I mean, kind of the the the, the, the um, I think the. Dakota Johnson is fine and she kind of does that Dakota Johnson thing that you've seen her doing in sort of other movies and that's not a criticism um I think kind of um I I I never watch a, a movie with her in it even bad movies and think like the movie is bad because of her um but anyway getting back to um uh, uh things I like about it it's um Olivia Coleman and our own um, why am I having such a difficulty? Remembering? Normal people actor. No, uh, the 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 other actor in that movie. Oh God, I'm very sorry. It's not. It's um, it's it's not because it's not Paul Maskell, is it? No, no. The um, the the younger Wait, version of Paul Olivia Ma- Coleman from uh from from oh, the Lost Jesse Daughter. Buckley, is it? Jesse no, Buckley. Uh-huh. 
I, I, I really like Jesse Buckley. Okay, well, I feel better because I'm now confirmed that Paul Mescal is in the movie. So Paul Mescal is in the movie. Um, <laughs> and and also feels like he's doing maybe a similar... I haven't seen... Um, uh, normal People. Normal People. It's good. But I, yeah, I've heard it's very good. And a lot of people are surprised that I haven't seen it. Um, because <laughs> I'm from Sligo, went to Trinity, um, and... Constantly advocating for the return of the erotic drama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always wearing O'Neill's tracksuits. All those things. Yeah. Grant. No, um I'll 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 recommend that. Like other than that, I've been I've been watching Book of Boba Fett. And again, that doesn't really kind of <laughs> work with this movie. I've been enjoying it. It's it's <laughs> it's uh, like and and actually we have discussed uh, the book of book of Boba Fett because I I I think I spoke. We did about talk it about too. that walkie. We did talk about the we walkie. We t- talked about it with like a really boss walkie. <laughs> and uh, we don't and, ask much of Star Wars. <laughs> Plural. Two huts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. cousins. Yeah. So yeah, I need like Why yeah. are they fanning themselves yeah. and curled around each other? Surely that's inefficient. Anyway. <laughs> I don't know. They, they, they um yeah, it's they Yeah, it it it, it is strange. I, I guess it's the way of expressing affection. Like if you had uh, like anyway. Sorry. Um, <laughs> If you're considering cancelling your Disney Plus, maybe just watch Book of Boba Fett and like just give a little bit more money to Disney. They really <laughs> like, need it. They really need they it. They really yeah. need it. Yeah, yeah. I don't like Dope Sick. I don't think it's good. Um, I, I think there's there's lots of stuff about the Sackler dynasty that are that are that are better that a person can enjoy um, and learn something and not get and not get a very kind of like. It's it's um, yeah. <laughs> anyway. I love just the randomness of that aside. It's like if you feel like giving Disney money, but not for dope sick, because dope sick. <laughs> <is awful. laughs> well, it's so, this thing that kind of misses the point sometimes, and can kind of like if if it, it it's absolutely something that you need to target and deal with is, is the opioid epidemic, but it it kind of misses the mark by going further than it needs to. Um, by saying not only was OxyContin like um, overprescribed and there was a, like a whole kind of a machinery behind that, but it's kind of like not only that, but it's a bad drug, which is which, which, which is kind of it, it's a drug. Um, so, yeah, yeah, no, I'd, I'd not recommend Dubstick, <laughs> but I would recommend Boba Fett. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, up. I should have prepared. <laughs> Feel free to recommend or unrecommend. <laughs> That's the format we're using now. Um, Empire of Pain is supposed to be very good. And like I say, there's a lot of kind of documentary stuff that's, um, um, that's on it. Sorry. <laughs> Lego now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, um, in terms of rec- one more thing about <laughs> one more thing about dosing. Sorry, Kira. <laughs> um, in terms of recommendations for you know if if you like it happened one night, um, as well as like every screwball comedy, uh, I'd like to re- recommend What's Up Doc, in which Ryan O'Neill as Cary Grant falls in love with Barbara Streisand as Bugs Bunny, uh, directed by what? the. 
the legend himself, Peter Bogdanovich, uh, who recently, recently passed, passed away. Oh my gosh. And uh, it's awesome. <laughs> it's so great. And also uh, The Sure Thing, the most underrated Rob Reiner movie of the 80s, uh, which is very influenced by It Happened One Night. It stars uh, John Cusack and a woman. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> Um, but, uh, for stuff that's not like it happened one night, I've, uh, been watching the films on the video nasty list that were banned in the UK in the eighties. And, uh, while not for everyone, I spit in your grave and cannibal Holocaust both get a big thumbs up from me. (laughs) (laughs) It's Valentine's Day. (laughs) You're looking to kill the mood. Um, yeah. Quite literally. Um, that, by the way, the co-star um, in in the Shore thing is Daphne Zuniga. Um, so she's, I, she's I very don't... good in it. But I, who is she? I don't Not know. a name. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> also starring Anthony Edwards as Lance because it is an eighties movie. Um, <laughs> um, in terms of of kind of recommendations from myself, I've been watching. I've had a bunch of free time lately, which is great. Everybody should have free time. So I've been watching television. I've been filling it with mindless nonsense. Um, I've been quite in. <laughs> Quite enjoying Yellow Jackets, uh, which I think wrapped up its first season. It's really good. Um, It's I really really enjoyed it. (laughs) (laughs) Or else Andrew's going to come for it on next week's uh, recommendations. You let me down with dope sick. That was Chris. To be clear, that was Chris. Um, But yes, I would wholeheartedly recommend Yellow Jackets. Then Um, I also quite enjoyed, and this is a recommendation tailored towards one specific person who is probably on this podcast is in fact on this podcast. MacGruber is now available to watch on Sky uh, TV and uh, listeners cannot see Andrew's eyes. Um, It's like you told a child. It's on now, I believe as well. Yes. Uh, Yep. It's like Christmas has arrived. All of Andrew's Christmases have arrived. Yes. The eight episode uh, first season of MacGruber. Um, it's available to stream now, and it is great. I had yes. a really, really, really good time with I'm gonna it. Going to keep giving uh, now money. <laughs> um, Who owns now? now? <laughs> Rupert Murdoch, isn't it? No, yes, is it Sky? Yeah. Sky? Yeah. No, no, yes, it's just a yes, Sky thing. Yeah. The Sky. Is I mean, that so there's the Sky thing. So yeah, I've got so there's two no apps ethical... on my television. One of them is like Sky Store. One of them is now it's like Sky Store. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not giving money to Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. I'll go to now. Thank you very much. Um, and then uh, two other quick recommendations that very quickly, one of which is kind of related to this because it's kind of a romantic comedy, but also it's a very cold recommendation because I'm not sure what I think about it. Uh, Pam and Tommy, which will have launched this week on Hulu in the States on Disney Plus here, uh, which is the story of Pam Anderson Lee and Tommy Lee, uh, their romance, um, the production of Barb Wire, and obviously the leaking of the sex tape. Um, we may be doing an episode uh, in the coming months that will cover one of those topics. It will be barbed wire before Andrew jumps in there. <laughs> um, uh, so it, it may be interesting if you want to kind of get some backstory. I'm back- talking about the whole of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the wonderful Jen Gannon will be joining us for that discussion. I'm actually really looking forward to that. And then finally, Peacemaker, uh, which is on HBO Max, um, which I, I really enjoy. It's from James Gunn, director of The Suicide Squad, director of Sliver, director of Super, director of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Uh, really loved it. Wholeheartedly recommend it. Um, it should be finishing up Sliver, right about now. Sliver, the erotic uh, drama? Or? Slither. With the <laughs> Slither. Slither. Yeah, n- not, not starring not bad Billy Baldwin. Yeah, oh, no, okay. no Baldwins are involved in the making of Slither. <laughs> okay. Um, 
100% less Baldwin. So yes, that is what I would recommend. All right, so Kira, if listeners are looking for a bit more Kira Maloney uh, in their lives, where can they find you, what you're doing, where you're at, what you're up to online? Um, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Kira Maloney. Maloney spelled with an O. Kira spelled like the normal way. I don't know. Um, not with a K, all you Anglophones. Um, you can listen to uh, my podcast, The Sunday Presents. That's Sunday with an E. Uh, I, I, I have to spell everything, but not actually spell it. Just one letter, one letter from everything. Um, or my, my website, uh, thesunday.net. And you can also find my writing in, you know, various places around the net. Uh, if you if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see. You'll see. You'll all see. <laughs> we'll show you. Um, I love how ominous those plugs were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, many people tend to like lean into enthusiasm when promoting their stuff. I do like the ominous thread of it all. People need to know that they're going to see. <laughs> yeah. You need certainty. That's that's what people really need right now. They need certainty. Uh, but yes, we will include uh, all those links in the shadows. Uh, Thank you very much. Hardly recommend them. <laughs> um, and and we are wherever we usually are. So we're on Twitter, on SoundCloud, <laughs> on iTunes, all that sort of stuff. Uh, listeners probably know this already. Uh, but we'll be back next week. Um, the wonderful Dean Buckley, um, your co-host or your co-founder, yeah. I think at the Sunday, yeah. will be joining us to talk about Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. Um, and we're really, really looking forward to that. Um, Great fun. All right. Um, all right, so take care. Thank you very much, Kira. Uh, thank, thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much, Kira. Cheers. Thank you, listeners. Really enjoyed everyone. it. Five stars. <laughs> <laughs>